Welcome to the Quadcast, brought to you by the Mary Christie Institute, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Institute. And I'm Dana Humphrey, the associate director of the Mary Christie Institute, and we're the hosts of the Quadcast. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, and I'm talking today with Dr. Zainab Akalo, Strategy Officer for Student Success at the Lumina Foundation. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and today's guest has dedicated her entire career to improve mental health as a therapist, policy expert, and now as a philanthropy partner in young adult mental health and higher education. Zainab, welcome to the Quadcast. Thank you so much for having me, Marjorie. It's great to be here. I'm so glad you're here with us. So you are a trauma-informed therapist working in philanthropy, focusing on student success. So this is a very interesting time to be in this space, and, and we've got a lot to talk about today. But can we start with your new research, which Lumina did in partnership with Gallup, which was super eye-opening. The new survey revealed that mental health is now the main driver for stopping out in college. Mental health was cited twice as often as the pandemic, the cost of college, or the difficulty of coursework as the reason college students had considered stopping out. Within the past six months, about one-third of bachelor's degree students and four in 10 associate degree seekers report they have considered stopping out. The numbers are even higher for BIPOC students. So a couple questions here. Were you surprised by these findings? And what do we make of all this? Yeah, Marjorie, thank you again for having me. Let me start by by saying this. No, I was not surprised because honestly, what we're witnessing today with higher education's current mental health crisis is the awakening of a sleeping giant. I've had the great fortune of spending the formative years of my career on the front lines of this issue as a former student services director and licensed mental health clinician. And there is no doubt that mental health has been a key student services issue for years. The State of Higher Education report authored by my colleague Courtney Brown with Lumina and Gallup highlighted this exact tension. Think about this. The report showed that 76% of college students surveyed indicated they considered stopping out of college due to mental health and emotional stress. This is a sharp 34% increase from the last report in just 2020. Arguably, this places mental health as the number one reason for students' dropout to date. For me, as a student advocate and mental health practitioner, this is a very big deal. And in recent months, in alignment with these findings, we have heard several pretty staggering tragedies related to the increase of suicide attempts, both on and off campus, and completion across the nation as a result of our pandemic crisis. And unfortunately, this reflects what, again, I've known for a long time, that the pandemic did not create the problem that we're currently facing. It only exacerbated what we already knew was there and intensified the need for a thoughtful response. You may remember, I think it was 2006, the world watched as the high-profile James Dungy, son of Tony Dungy, former NFL coach to the Indiana Colts, his son was found by his girlfriend after being a victim to a completed suicide in his college dorm room. At the time, the media coverage did its best to focus on the tragedy of the loss, both to the campus community and to the Dungy family. But at the same time, institutions were simply not equipped or positioned to 
utilize such a tragedy in transforming campus culture towards long-term solutions, especially when the tragedy was then viewed as something that was particularly individual rather than a systemic challenge or gap that it presented and, and highlighted in terms of delivering need. So now we have a unique opportunity to have some really hard conversations, pivot resources towards institutions, and as a result, and of course, most importantly, save the lives of our students that may be struggling. So uh, thank you for that. I want to ask you a couple things because there's so much to unpack here. The, let's talk a little bit about the pandemic. So you're a trauma-informed therapist and you said the pandemic, I mean, obviously this didn't cause the problem, but it certainly exacerbated it. Yeah. I, I just can't help but look at this research and see the, the change. The previous Gallup study had shown financial concern, I think is the number one. And now right. it's clearly emotional stress. So that is, has got to be, as you say, um, related to what happened in the in the past two years with what we're really thinking of as the triple pandemic, right? Which is the public health crisis, the economic crisis, right. and the racial reckoning, and the inequity in which the pandemic was experienced by students. Right. Talk a little bit about are we, as, as a higher ed academy, are we thinking enough about really what has happened over the past two years? Are we taking that into account? And again, I'm asking you because I know you're a trauma-informed therapist. So I'm interested right. in sort of the collective trauma. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great question. So my short answer to your question is no, we are not. But a connection to your first is that on exactly how trauma works is that this type of impact really does directly influence our decision-making. You might have already noticed that we are becoming, as we're becoming more increasingly vaccinated, and as many of us have celebrated, returning back to being outside, there are so many behaviors that are sending change-back signals to our larger society, and particularly our students on college campuses. And all a change-back signal is in psychology is really a return to what was based or normal. And what trauma will do is try to get you back to what is familiar, whether that's healthy or not. For that, we are doing our best to forget and to return to what we knew as normal. Prior to 2020, the racial reckoning that we faced in 2020. And the hard truth is that life as we knew it prior to 2020 is gone. We have to be willing to acknowledge this truth and thereby prepare for what is to come. Part of what we're seeing with the increase of the mental health crisis and the facets that are playing out, including some of the increase in suicide ideation, is that we simply have a longer road ahead in discovering just how our society and thereby our institutions have been shaped by this crisis, along with how students choose to cope. What we have to do when factoring in the fixes, the modalities that we might want to adopt and implement on our campuses, is to both first acknowledge that we are not the same and to prepare for the ways in which our students will respond to the spectrum of feelings of that truth while providing some right-sized supports and meeting the needs of those that are struggling. And the one unique thing about our traditional age college students is that we've characterized them around some of their adjusted coping mechanisms when they're newly finding their independence. We've seen this throughout books and Hollywood students and their drinking behaviors, their spending behaviors, because it's their first you know, crack at independence. And now think about that with a layer of a pandemic that none of us could have predicted. So we just, we have a longer road ahead. Trauma is not neat. 
And so we have to do our best to at least acknowledge that we are simply not the same to start on our journey of healing and right action. So this is a tough time, right? Because all of what you just described comes really at the heels of what was identified some five, six, seven years ago through the Healthy Mind Study reporting, which has really led to a campus mental health crisis in some senses, particularly around capacity. And then there's sort of the upstream strategies around preventative and environmental work that is being done on college campuses. So this just makes all of that in some way more difficult. But, and I will say from a previous conversation that you and I had, and I loved this optimism on your part, you talked about the opportunity that this kind of crisis does present and this kind of change presents, particularly, as you said, nothing is the same. So I want to talk a little bit about your ideas for how we can address this and reverse this trend. But I want to focus on one idea that has come up, and it's really was revealed in some research that re- we recently did around peer mental health support on college campuses. We had done research, uh, a survey with Born This Way Foundation, the Mary Christie Institute and Born This Way Foundation, that showed that one in five students are already using these services. And this is defined as seeking mental health support from a peer, not a friend. And a majority are interested in doing so, more so after the pandemic and more so in marginalized groups. So I have two questions for you here. What do you make of this interest on the part of students And as a therapist, what are some of your concerns? That is a great question. So first, let me say I'm so encouraged by student mental health activism. It's great to see students wanting to not only be part of the conversation, but a part of the solution. And however encouraging this is, it has to be said, these are still young people when we think about traditional age students who themselves are still figuring out themselves. With this, we have to consider that for traditional age college students between the ages of 17 to 22 in particular, they are transitioning from adolescence to early adulthood. And in this, there needs to be perspective and training. So I'll put this out there. I've I've now been a therapist for going on 12 years, and it took me a good four of those years to truly learn how not to assume my client's trauma, how not to become so empathetically involved in what I was learning from these resilient folks that I had the honor of working with, that I didn't wear it as my own issue or become triggered from my own past traumas. And actually beyond learning and perfecting your modality choice, this is a big part of being a therapist. It's learning how to decenter yourself, de-escalate yourself, and not take up room that your client needs to heal. And although students are more than willing and comfortable in talking to their peers and might have, you know, I've seen studies where students have indicated they'd rather talk to their peers. It's important that we do not trade one issue for another, that we do not create one crisis in our hope to address another. When students need mental health services, they should be connected to an actually trained and experienced professional that will be able to support them in the ways that they need and in which we can see long-term positive results and not just immediate forms of comfort. So Zainab, I want to stop you on that because I think that's a really interesting point. 
So in, when you think about peer mental health support and the role of students, I think you'd agree that, as you said, students want to help. That was another thing that we found out in our survey. They do this out of altruism, you know, wanting to give back. So there's a role for students, but that's where it gets tricky, right? Like what is that role? And you have yeah. made a great case about the clinical concerns. So one of the points you just made was about getting relief in the moment. I thought that was interesting. So talk a little more about that. Some of, I mean, it feels good to talk to people who get you, but you're worried a little bit that that that's not getting at the real issue, right? Absolutely. So as I've mentioned, students oftentimes want to talk to other students that they connect with. They want to connect with their peers and know that they're not alone. I mean, they have had to go through a process where some of their development was done in isolation during quarantine. So that that is all fair and good. But in thinking about the role that students can play here, I, I want to focus a little bit on the generation that we are inheriting. So I, I personally have characterized the current generation of traditional age students, Gen Z, college students, as a generation of confident innovators, creative collaborators, who are not shy at all about using their voice and talents and addressing societal injustices that they witness. I'm really excited to see that. When it comes to mental health on campus, students make excellent advocates. They make excellent change agents. They make excellent destigmatizers. So students are key in creating campus cultures that not only promote mental health and well-being, but help remove the shame and stigma around engaging resources. Another role that I see students being able to play in a healthy way includes connecting their peers to resources. So with the right training, students may be equipped to perhaps do quick intakes and supporting their peers towards working with licensed professionals, especially when they present with a diagnosed mental health challenge. Anything beyond this, in my opinion, is putting too much demand on students who, again, themselves are still figuring themselves out, no matter how resilient they present. So I'm going to maybe put you on the spot here. Do you see potentially the interest, particularly on the part of Black students, students in the LGBTQ plus community, that there is an interest in this because possibly the system is letting them down or that this the, the current apparatus for seeking help doesn't match their cultural priorities. I mean, we've seen that in our research. So that was kind of my one question. And then the follow-up to that, Zainab, is what do we do about this? I know you've got some thoughts on changes that can be made that could get at that issue. Those are two great questions. So first, Thinking about students of color, this crisis has left our equity populations even more vulnerable than they were before. And students of color have experienced significant loss as they were more likely to be frontline workers, have parents, one or both that were frontline workers, and thereby could have lost one or both parents to the pandemic, in turn, having their mental health disproportionately impacted by the very same pandemic. So an analogy that if I do the other day that I really appreciated was, you know, we're all in the same storm, but not in the same boat, meaning we don't all have the same protections. We don't all have the same relationship to the very same storm. Some of us are more exposed to the elements. Additionally, the, the mental health space and access to resources has not always been even or fair to students of color. Students of color are also less likely to have access to mental health screenings before they get to college or even access to individualized education 
diagnoses um, and plans, IEDs before they enter college. So when they go through things like early onset, it's it's a lot more staggering than students that have that might have already had these supports, had a more trusting relationship with the use of therapeutic services. And that is a that's another topic for another day. It's a very, very long relational story that needs to be healed. And now we need more representation on campus for students of color to oftentimes feel comfortable and other marginalized groups, those in the LGBTQIA community to feel comfortable, to feel accepted, to not feel, what's the word I'm looking for, to not feel like they are being simply studied, that they are actually receiving the services that they need to not only cope with what they're, what they're going through, but have the support towards their own healing. For me, to answer your second question, this is our moment. The crisis has created, as we mentioned, an opportunity, and the pandemic happened to do just that for the for mental health on college campuses. As I mentioned, this was an issue during my early career days over a decade ago, but now we have the space to do a few things differently, including engaging our advocacy boys, updating insurance to be more inclusive of mental health as health, expanding our partnerships with other key stakeholders outside of higher education that also happen to be integral within the mental health space and within mental health systems and access, and even bridging the gap between K-12 and higher ed. Because remember, institutions are inheriting students from high school who, again, experience a quarantine and thereby a sort of emotional, social, emotional, developmental pause or gap as they spend time adjusting to learning in isolation. And we know much of students' healthy development is in relationship to and, and community with their peers. And in the absence of that, we're finding students struggle when they enter their freshman year. So imagine an eighth grader going from eighth grade to college <laughs> when we think about social emotional development, because that's exactly what we're inheriting in this next cohort of students coming into college. So these are students that oftentimes are on top of that entering with undiagnosed or as we would call early onset mental health challenges that are discovered only after they get on campus and find that they're depressed and or anxious and engaging in their coping mechanisms. This is also a moment for us to create a culture of inclusion on campus and to ensure the students are aware that such struggles are, are pretty normal right now and that there's no need to avoid or suppress them or to hide them, but instead to engage with what they're struggling with and receive the resources that they need. Zainab, it sounds like more than ever, we need to focus on the onboarding, right? The students who are coming into these institutions and doing so will then hopefully have an impact on some of the prevalence numbers that are being reported, we would naturally think would be the case. So what would some of those strategies be? I mean, right now there's so many orientation modules, but you're really talking about bringing mental health right into the curriculum almost, right? Absolutely. So I'm going to harken back to when I was an academic director and I had a little bit of influence over the major that I was a director for and kind of developing curriculum and we had courses that students had to take. We had experiences that, that they had to engage, like for example, their required internship experience. And then we had some opt-out experiences that if they didn't indicate that they did not want to do this, this was ending up on their schedule in some way. Some of this was in terms of elective courses and some other engagement activities. And I wonder what it would look like if higher ed looked, as, looked at mental health as key to a student 
being oriented to campus. We normalize the conversation around early onset and self-discovery, what that means, what those challenges feel like, so that we do not create another generation of students that think that resilience means ignoring. Resilience means hiding. Resilience means not asking for help or not presenting as an issue. And this all plays into, I think, the conversation that we've been having around just destigmatizing the challenges. One thing that I, I was surprised by with the pandemic and how quickly this, this happened is I really thought we had a moment there where, where folks would finally kind of normalize folks being in, in struggle. And instead, we're running towards that door of, nope, everything is fine. <laughs> we are okay. We're all okay. You're okay. I'm okay. And it's like, if there's anything that we were introduced to that can give us permission to cry out and say, hey, I need help. Hey, I'm not doing okay. It should have been a pandemic that for, you know, there was a big chunk of those initial couple weeks and months when we thought we were just having an extended, I don't know, what spring break or something that we realized, oh no, we don't have a grip around this. This is a global situation that none of us were okay. And we lost so many people. So this should be the moment where we're almost normalizing for students, that we're calling the students that cry for help resilient, that we're saying, thank you for flagging for us as we learn more about how this has impacted you. So I think some of the conversation that I'm pushing for us to have is really culturally transformative conversation within higher education institutions. Of course, acknowledging that the Institute of Higher Ed is a, is a slow-changing system and it's meant to deliver degrees and credentials and populate our workforce. We want a healthy workforce. <laughs> so why not put that at the foundations of what students are learning when they come in our doors? Absolutely. It's funny because you're right about the pace of change in higher ed, but look what the pandemic did. You know, it forced some pretty big changes pretty quickly. And I agree with you about the opportunity. I've got a little bit of a theory, and I'm this is the glass half full side of me, that because there has been so much trauma and upset and the mental health Obviously, the prevalence numbers are concerning for college presidents, I'm, and I'm veering towards leadership and messaging here, that there may be a change of tone on college campuses that really speaks to this community of caring. And it has a lot to do with faculty. So I hope that there's more of a license out there now to ask your students, how are you feeling? Or even say to them, you know what? I had a really hard time. And we had a, a recent convening in DC with college presidents, and it was a self-selected group, and these folks really, really care about mental health. And there was the sense that that we don't do well enough in higher ed. That's the optimist in me is hoping that there's a culture change, just as you said. And it has to do with how we even speak to one another. Absolutely. And to give our institutional leaders credit, I was looking at the American Council on Education. As you know, Marjorie, they do a pulse point survey yearly. And this year they indicated that college presidents are saying mental health is the key issue on their campus. So in terms of shifting messaging, institutional leaders know what they're seeing. It's rising to the president's cabinet and they're asking how best to serve their students. They want their students to be healthy. They want their students to lead not only academically actualized and with a quality degree, but they want their students to lead well. And I think that in having these conversations and these connections with leaders that are paying attention 
to the outcry of their students, we do have an opportunity to, to have conversations that in past years, they, they, they just weren't, they weren't welcome. They weren't welcome conversations. There's no other way to put that because we have, if we think about hiring from the business model perspective, we have our business of education, we have our product of our degrees and our and the experience that we afford students, but our students, the consumer are now saying, I can't engage with your product. I can't engage with what you're offering if I don't feel well enough to do so. How are you going to make me feel well and safe enough to even trust myself on your campus? And again, I, I really appreciate the generation. If this is a generation that might not attend 10-year college if you are a single plastic use institution. <laughs> so how much more if you don't acknowledge the fact that they have struggled with mental health. If you don't acknowledge the fact that they 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 want to leave both mentally stable and well with their degree, and they want to do so within a time frame that makes sense for them in an affordable or safe way. And so I, I really do celebrate leaders for being honest about what they're seeing. I celebrate organizations like ACE for thinking through ways to capture this knowledge as we think best about what practices would best serve institutions at the time. And I think these sorts of conversations kind of start us off with allowing leaders to know that it's not just your campus, you know, this is happening, you know, because the pandemic didn't just happen on your campus. This, this was a, you know, a global experience and it unearthed something that our space has almost had to turn a blind eye to for for years. So we so we now have an opportunity. I couldn't agree more. And I just shout out to our mutual friend and colleague, Holly Chessman at ACE, who was the driver behind those Pulse Point surveys. And I, I agree that that really was eye-opening for, for all of us, because you're right, the messaging has to come from on high. And I do think that hopefully it will change as you so eloquently described. This has been an amazing conversation, but I have to ask you before you go a little bit about Lumina. What is going on there? I'm loving that you guys are really focusing on this space. Just tell us a little bit about the other work that you're doing in mental health. Absolutely. So Lumina Foundation, and in, in beyond the report that we just released a couple of weeks ago, through our Racial Justice and, and Equity Fund, in early 2020, we partnered with the Steve Fund. Marjorie, I know you're you're familiar, but for our listeners, the Seed Fund is a dedicated organization that is focused on supporting the mental health and emotional well-being of young people of color. They've really taken on the work of suicide prevention for students of color because we know that, again, thinking through how students of color have been engaged around this topic and have had or have not had access to resources, they stand to be the most vulnerable with our equity first and equity centered work and, and mission, partnering with Steve Friend has really taught us a lot about the frameworks that institutions can use, the ways in which we uplift the voices of students of color, and has also challenged us to think about additional ways to use our platform and use our voice. The Surgeon General released a report at the end of 2020 making a sharp critique of this issue on youth mental health and also a sharp demand of philanthropies to utilize their voice, to utilize their resources in terms of partnership and influence. And I think Lumina has done just that in this report and in our partnership with Steve Run, and we hope to continue the conversation. That's terrific stuff. This has been a, a really great conversation. I appreciate your insights. I think that we've all learned a lot today, and please come back on the podcast. We'd love to have you again. I would love to return. Thank you so much for having me. You take care. You too. Thank you. This has been the Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Institute. 
To learn more about our work, go to marychristieinstitute.org, where you can sign up for our other programs, like the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening.